Welcome back to the Activation Project, where we activate your mind, activate your tribe, and activate the world. If you're interested in knowing a little bit more about the three phases of our project, visit our website at theactivationproject.com. It's been a few weeks since our last session, so we're really happy to be back here. We've had a lot of changes happening, but changes are wonderful. You know, the only thing sure in this life is that absolutely nothing is for sure. And I think the sooner we can get more comfortable with that or find comfort in that, the easier life is. In Austin recently, we had a gigantic winter storm. I call it the snowpocalypse. We were without power for five days. Some people were without water and others without power. Paloma, my guest here, you guys without power, right? Yes, ma'am. Five whole days without water. There were people shoveling snow and boiling it to drink or to bathe in. So it was pretty crazy and it shook everything up. And it's just so interesting how from one minute to the next, your whole reality can change. We try so hard to control our lives, to control the environment around us, but there's just some things that can't be controlled. And every now and then we get this you know, pretty big reminder of that. And for me, I think it's good for us because it challenges our resiliency, which is the topic of our episode today. We're going to be talking about resiliency and of course, to go along with the theme of this season, uncovering shame and the stuff that we hold on to that just can either make or break our lives. So without Further ado, I want to introduce my amazing and wonderful guest here. Her name is Paloma Cifuentes. Hello, hello. Hi, people. How are we doing today? First of all, I want to say thank you to my good friend, my mentor, my coach, Olivia, here for guiding me through this journey that I've been on for the last almost six months. It's been not easy, <laughs> uh, not always enjoyable, but it's definitely the best thing that I've done for myself, for my kids, my husband, my life as a whole, and can't wait to talk about it. Yes. Yeah, so a little bit about Paloma. You know, I used to work with her a long time ago, like almost six months. Mm -hmm. She reached out to me uh, mm -hmm. to do a journey and I'll let her tell that story. But now she's in training to be a coach, one of our activation coaches, as well as working in the health coach niche as well. So, you know, at the end of this, we'll give all of her information if you're interested in working with her because she's an incredible woman. I mean, literally the epitome of resiliency. So we're going to go through her mind-blowing story, like a lot of the guests that we bring on here. But just to talk a little bit about change and just, you know, when we find ourselves presented with the unknowing, you know, is just is reaching for whatever positive thought that we can, whatever thing that's going to help us to tap into that inner resiliency that we all have. Right. And sometimes, you know, when we're able to see things from that perspective, we can see the opportunity to one, maybe tap into community, right. And see who around us is doing worse off than us? How can I connect with the people around me? How can I be of service? I know a lot of people, you know, neighbors were giving, you know, whatever they had extra of to their neighbors in need. And I just thought how beautiful that was. You know, I grew up in uh, Central America. 
as a lot of you guys know in the group, the Children of God. And as soon as we moved to El Salvador, this devastating earthquake happened, which just sort of leveled out the country. It was just so amazing to me how the El Salvadoranians, they just bounced back. It was like the next day they're like, okay, well, what do we have to do now? We have to go get this. You know, we have to start rebuilding. And you would never have guessed that something had happened because they just have this amazing faith and resiliency that just keeps them going. And that is something that Paloma has. It's an amazing quality. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited for her to be here and share this story with you guys. So we usually start with the transitional dilemma, the thing that brought Paloma to the point where she's like, all right, what now? Something has got to change. So the transitional dilemma usually precedes transformation. So if you would, would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So it's about a year ago today. Uh, it was actually March 14th that I was having a conversation, very difficult conversation with my husband about some of my old habits and some of my old feelings from before I married him, from my life that had resurfaced. And I was, I caught myself in this, you know, negative spiral of emotions. And I was seeking attention in negative ways outside of my marriage, kind of hanging out with wrong crowds. I was a bartender at the time, serving up alcohol to everybody, including myself. And that took quite a hold of me and caused a lot of disconnect between me and my husband. We, about a year ago today, like I said, we found ourselves pretty much on the verge of divorce. I really thought that with me telling him some of the things that I was feeling, you know, the disconnect that I was feeling from him, I really thought that I was going to end up as a single mother. And I just did not want that for my kids. And it was petrifying. It scared the fucking shit out of me to have that conversation with him. And to my surprise, he was like, nope, we are going to work this out. I love you. I chose you. You choose me. We talked about it. He accepted me for who I was. And that at one point in my life, I accepted him for who he was in his past self. And he pretty much relieved me from that shame that I was feeling. And we made amends. I asked him to forgive me for not being myself or not showing up 100% for such a long time because I had been in that negative spiral for quite a while then. And we made amends. We decided to make things work. And this happened in March, but it wasn't until October that I decided to reach out to Olivia because I was still, my drinking pattern still had control over me. I was still using drinking as my coping mechanism when I felt stressed, anxious, when I was feeling pain. And I didn't know, I knew that there was a lot of pain inside of me. I knew that I needed to heal. I just had no idea how. And so that's when I reached out to Olivia and we did our first guided journey. And my life has been amazing ever since. <laughs> Yay! Okay, for victory. Yeah, she gave me a call. She's like, Olivia, I need help. You know, I know that you have gotten sober and I'm having this trouble with drinking and what can we do? And, you know, usually when people reach out to me with that, because I drink now every now and then is I let them know that there's usually a lot of stuff in there that's the reason why you're drinking to excess. There's some sort of pain that you're trying to run away from. It's a form of escape. And a lot of times it has to do with unprocessed childhood trauma. The other thing could be stuff that you're holding on to inside that you feel shame about, that feeling of unworthiness. So if anybody knew these things, they wouldn't love me. And that's very painful and it can be very subconscious and it can be pushing us towards these unwanted behaviors. So she came over and we just kind of went back to the beginning and uncovered 
some craziness from her story. She scored a nine on the ACE, which is it measures the adverse childhood experiences. Let's talk a little bit about that. So what were some of the main things that, you know, caused you to score a nine on the ACE? So I'm an immigrant. I am a first generation immigrant. I came to the U.S. when I was five years old. And I'm the youngest of nine children. My father was an alcoholic for a very, very long time, very abusive when he was under the influence of alcohol. I've heard many stories from my brothers and sisters, from my mother, especially my mom, that he was a very loving and caring person when he was not under the influence of alcohol, but he struggled with it for many, many years. And I think it had a lot to do with his trauma that he was dealing with. He lost his mother at a very, very young age. His father, I think, was also an alcoholic at some point of his life. And that's just how he learned to deal with pain and stress and, you know, negative emotion. And he pretty much abused my mother for a long time. And there was just a lot of trauma there in itself. Luckily, I was born about two years after he got sober. So I never got to see him. I never saw him under the influence of alcohol. I never saw that side of him. I always saw him as the loving, caring father. My older brothers and sisters, they dealt with a lot of the trauma themselves because they were a part of it. They were there to see and witness it. When I was growing up in the U.S., there was a lot of stressful situations that I was dealing with just growing up in general because growing up can't be hard. Yeah, you're the youngest of... I'm the youngest of nine. nine. Mm -hmm. And so anytime there was anything you know, going on with me, anytime that I was complaining about not wanting to do my homework or not wanting to go to school or not wanting to do whatever it was around the house. There was always eight other siblings above me that were saying, well, you didn't have it that bad. Suck it up. Keep going. And I learned to just kind of be compliant and just follow orders and kind of suppress my emotions. My dad got deported when I was around eight or nine. And then a few years later, my mother got deported when I was 13. So... So you lost one parent and, lost, then shortly after, and then shortly after you lost the other. Mm -hmm. Although your mom getting deported may have been a blessing in disguise at that time, just because of the relationship that you guys had as far as like... Yeah, kind of. So at that time, my mother had just been diagnosed with... Um, she was manic depressive and bipolar disorder here in the U.S., it wasn't until she was in Mexico that she got diagnosed with schizophrenia. So I always knew that there was a mental disorder behind her actions when I was younger. She had this big passion to be a singer. That was like her dream. That's what she wanted to do. That's when she was the most happy. And she saw coming to the U.S. as a big opportunity to really explore that career choice, that, you know, being a musician. And so she went to just as many restaurants as she could to ask if she could sing and just ask for tips. They wouldn't really pay her to sing. We would just go and she would sing with her karaoke machine and she would take me with her and she would ask me to sing. And then afterwards we'd go and we'd collect tips. And that's how we, that's how she got money for whatever she wanted for the week or, you know, groceries. I mean, she wasn't a very high-maintenance person. It's not like she ever wasted that money on herself on useless crap. She never really had a drinking problem. It was just mainly so that she could have money for the things that she wanted to do, for the things that she needed. And so 
This was the time that my mother was the most happiest. I was happy to go with her and, and I was so happy when she used to coach me to sing. And she always told me that I had a beautiful voice and that um, that I was going to be her little singer. And when people saw this, you know, cute little 10 year old girl singing her heart out with her mom and then afterwards asking for money, they were prone to give more money. And so I think that she got a lot of joy out of that, too. But her decisions were never really rational. She would keep me out way too late. We went to bars that I should never be at at that age. I saw some very crazy sexual things that I probably should not have seen at that age. And she kept me out late on school nights, which was the one thing that drove my older sisters crazy. And they always had something to say about it. They would always tell my mother that she was crazy for keeping me out that late or that she was not making the best decisions. And my mother would then play the victim. And I was stuck in between like, well, do I choose my sisters who make a lot of sense? Or do I choose my mother who's obviously in pain and wants to release some of that pain by singing her heart out? And, you know, obviously I, I was a mommy pleaser. I wanted to deal with my mom. So yeah, when she got deported, it was uh, an opportunity for us to kind of it was an opportunity for her to heal some of the trauma that she had been burying inside of her. And it was also an opportunity for me to explore that trauma from an outside perspective, not necessarily being there with her. Yeah. And it's so crazy. I went through the same thing as a child, you know, like part of what our group did was they'd send the kids out to fundraise and we would sing. And that was like every weekend. And as a kid, you don't know life anything other than the life you're living, right? So it's not like something that's really hard. You just kind of see things, okay, in black and white, and this is how it is. And usually stuff doesn't start to affect you until you're older when you can actually deal with it. So any trauma that's happening as you're growing up, you tend to disassociate from it to survive, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're just little resilient creatures. So we just keep going. And then as you get older, you might start to see things that come up, right? Like struggling with drinking too much or promiscuity and stuff like that mm -hmm. and dishonesty. And that comes up and then, and that's when it's time to take a look and be like, okay, what things affected me? Not so that you can play the victim or not so that you can use it as a crutch, to not proceed forward so that you can understand yourself. So that has to do with phase one of the activation project, which is to know yourself. And this is just part of knowing who you are. It's part of your story. Mm -hmm. So then you can understand, you can accept yourself and then love yourself. So that's just how it goes. We don't want to use it as a way to be like, oh man, my life was so bad, which, you know, a lot of people fall into that trap. But it's just to understand and to become aware, okay, because of this, I might have tendencies towards, you know, substance abuse or something like that, you know, but that doesn't mean that you can't get past it. It's just a framework, right? Yeah. And I think that that's what the discomfort comes from whenever you're doing some of this work is that you're so used to using other things as a crutch. And for a while, for, I mean, pretty much all through high school, I did victimize myself. I did play the victim and that's how, you know, I was able to not show up to some of my classes. And then my teachers would ask me well, what's going on. And I'd be like, well, you know, I don't have my parents and I'm working two jobs to pay the bills. And that's story worked for years. I, you know, I was able to graduate high school and it works so much until it doesn't, until you're an adult, you know, you have a job that you freaking hate. You so have. what was school like for you? So for pretty much my mother left when I was 13. So right before high school and from high school on, I've been working since I was 14, either weekend jobs or after school jobs or summer jobs to save up enough money for whatever I needed 
for my school year, I pretty much bought my own back to school clothes. You know, every once in a while, my one of my brothers, he would take me school shopping and he'd buy me clothes and shoes and stuff. But for the most part, anything that I wanted from the age of 12, 13 until now, I had to buy myself. You know, if I wanted a nice pair of shoes, if I wanted food, candy, stuff like that, it was, you know, mostly on myself. What um, was your relationship like with your siblings? My siblings have been, oh my goodness, I, I love my siblings. I know that they all have their own stories, their own trauma. And for a long time, I think I didn't feel brave enough to talk about my trauma or the stuff that I was dealing with because I always felt like they had it a lot worse than I did. You know, I always looked at them and I saw how successful they were and how they got here with literally nothing and they were able to buy a house. I have a family of entrepreneurs. All of my sisters, my older brothers and sisters, they all have their own businesses. And I'm super proud of them for being able to do that and being so resilient. And so I've always looked up to them. But when it comes to emotional, our emotional well-being, we were not always emotionally available for each other, mainly because we didn't know how to be emotionally available for ourselves, mm. you know? Oh, yeah. And that, that was really, really hard. So for a long time, I suppressed a lot of my emotions because I felt like I had a cake. I felt like I didn't have a reason to be sad or upset, you know? And one of the things that I remember hearing a lot growing up was, you're not going to solve anything by crying. So what are you going to do? You know, and yeah. just keep on moving, keep on working. And as long as you have your bills paid and as long as you're going to school and you've got your stuff done, you know, you have no excuse. Like it was like, you have no excuse to not get shit done. And that's how I grew up. And so going to school, I remember I almost did not graduate high school. I went into my principal's office and I cried my eyes out because my physics professor did not want to pass me. And I, you know, I sold her the story that I was working. And I was, I was working overnight at IHOP during my senior year of high school. And I worked overnight so that I could play soccer because uh, soccer has always been my thing. And I had to stay after school Monday through Friday till six. So soccer practice ended. And so my shift at IHOP would start at five and I couldn't make it at five. So I asked them if I could work at 10. So I would work from 10 a, from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Oh my God. <laughs> and then go to school? And then go to school and then stay after school for soccer and then go and do it again. This was about maybe four times a week all throughout my senior year of high school. And so obviously my grades were not always there. I was almost never in my physics class. And if I was there, I was falling asleep. And my physics professor, he hated me. <laughs> I mean, because I wouldn't show up. And then when I showed up, I didn't want to do the work. And I mean, I get it. He ended up failing me and I needed to pass his class to be able to graduate. So I had to go through this whole paperwork thing where I had to get a special document from the principal and from the district that I was able to graduate. And that's how I graduated high school. Not because I was a great student. <laughs> You were just surviving. I'm so glad that they actually facilitated that for you, mm -hmm. you know, because clearly you had the skills that you needed to survive, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we just have to use all our resources. But you did bring up a really good point with something that I think happens a lot in families with siblings. And I truly believe that one of our biggest challenges in this life is our family and the relationships that we have with them. I mean, I believe that we are here in this world. It's a schoolyard. We are here to constantly learn, to constantly level up and to expand our minds and to grow. And that is like level one, you know, like you got to get past it, you know, like figure this out, these relationships out, because they can be so, so challenging. But if we can look at them as a challenge or a test, it just kind of helps us, right? But one thing that happens is the trauma comparing. 
right? Well, my trauma was worse than yours, so you have no legs to stand on. Or just the discounting of each other's pain, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, well, we all went through pain, so just get over it, you yeah, know? pretty much. And the truth is, is, you know, sometimes when you're young and you don't know how to make sense of it, you have to cope, right? You have to pull what resources you have. And sometimes you just have to compartmentalize. I think that's how a lot of people said disassociation got through. So at the time you're like, well, just keep going, keep going, keep going. But at some point you have to get to a place where you can validate what you went through in your experience. Mm-hmm. And after you validate your own experience, or, you know, that's what we do in the journeys that we go through as we listen and we hear all of, you know, everything. Sometimes for the first time in people's lives are they getting to share these stories and experiences and sit there with compassion and empathy so that they can release that shame. And then once they connect to their pain and their story, you know, that they went through and like, get it validated, like, okay, shit, I did go through a lot. Okay. I can have a little compassion on myself Mm -hmm. for the things, all the fuck ups, you know, then you can go back to your family and hold space for them. Mm-hmm. And validate their pain so that maybe they can do it with each other. But yeah, it's such a common story that I hear. And it's one that happens in my own family, you know. So it's a challenge for sure. Yeah. And I think what really drew me to reaching out and finally saying, okay, that's enough. Like we've got to make a change is my own kids. I realized that I was letting all of this pain that I had not dealt with. And I knew I wanted to deal with it. I just had no idea how. And I knew that there was pain from my childhood. There was a lot of resentment that I held to my dad. And I remember on our second guided journey, I asked myself forgiveness on behalf of my dad. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. We did the Perceptual positioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was so powerful for me because he had asked me for forgiveness because he started a new family. And it's not so much that he started a new family after he left. It's that he didn't really tell us. There's like a whole backstory to this, right? But it was basically, I was holding a lot of resentment for him. I felt like I deserved an apology because there was a lot of stuff that he held from us because of his own shame, which I totally get now. I'm able to understand it. And like you said, if, you know, when you heal and when you're able to validate your own traumas, you're able to hold space for others and validate their traumas. And you see it from a whole different perspective. And so I was able to do that with my dad. And, you know, for me, it was wanting to break free from that, repeating that cycle. I didn't want to do that with my kids. And I realized that I wasn't being emotionally available to them. And I realized that I wasn't connecting with them as much as I wanted to. And it was because I was being held back by some of my own pain that I hadn't dealt with. That's what ultimately got me to reach out for help. And that's what keeps me pushing forward and keeps me wanting to learn more and help others break free from their negative habits, their cycle. And I feel like everybody needs to do that in their life. Everyone, it doesn't, because we all have traumas. That's just it, right? We're all humans. We all live and we were all impacted by many different things throughout our life. And we all need to be able to hold that space for ourselves have some self-compassion and heal in order to be of better service to others around us, especially our kids, our family, and the people who matter most. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I want to ask you a couple questions about that. But first, I wanted to say, like, and honor your story of growing up without parents, because I know that that is really hard and nobody should have to go through that. And the reason why I just brought up the blessing in disguise is because, you know, I know that you and I have worked through a lot of that stuff, especially in our guided journey, which is important, right? You have to look at things and then realize, like, 
like, wow, that was pretty hard. That was rough. I shouldn't have had to do that. But then once you heal from that, then it's like, how can I create the narrative that's going to most empower and serve me to keep going? So then that's when you take, because first you look at things clearly for the way that it shouldn't have happened, right? That did, because trauma Mm -hmm. happens with the absence of good things that should have happened, like having two parents Mm -hmm. and then bad things that shouldn't have happened, right? So it happens in both ways. So looking at that clearly, because only by looking at that clearly will we not repeat it with our kids and stuff like that. Right. But after you recognize that, you don't have to stay there. You can design the narrative for your life that is going to most empower you and empower others. So then you start to look at, okay, how was this actually a benefit in my life? What became of my life because of these things that happened? How did this create resiliency that is now enabling me to do this and get this far? I mean, you're a killer, you know, you just keep going. You don't stop, you know, like you are an incredible mother and, you know, and and so it's just like looking at those things, you know, like I know when I first did my guided journeys, I finally realized, okay, all of the things that had really hurt me and it caused me to have all of this behavioral dysfunction in my life. And I had to process through that for like six months to a year, you know, and I had to talk about that stuff that affected me in that way. But now that I'm on the other side, I'm back to, wow, you know, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. change a single thing about my life. Same. Yeah, exactly. I I think whenever we do hear from our traumas, exactly like you said, we were able to go back for a long time. You know, you say, damn, these things shouldn't have happened. You grow up and you keep thinking that these things should not have happened to you. And now whenever I look back, I'm like, you know, everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. And everything happens for me, not against me. And I'm able to really live with that. And really, you know, now when the the minimal thing goes wrong in my life, I'm able to say, you know what? It's meant to be that way. It's, It's just meant to be that way. Brene Brown talks about resiliency in her book, The Ten Gifts of Imperfection. And she says that people that are resilient, they have faith. That's one of the things that they share amongst other things, but that's the one that stood out to me the most. And for me, it, it has always been faith. It's knowing that there's this higher power, whether you call it God, the universe, that connects us and that we're united by love and compassion for each other. And that's what we're called to do. That's why we're here. That's our mission on this world is to share our story and share love and compassion with others and keep moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. Faith is so huge. It's like you can believe that there's meaning in what happened Mm -hmm. or that, you know, that something good came out of it or that will come out of it. Or you can believe that there's not. Yeah. And that life is pain and misery and suffering. Like, And you will stay in that misery. And you will stay in that misery and you'll stay in that suffering for as long as you want to. Because it's it's a choice. You know, staying there is a choice that you make. And some people don't even realize it. And I know for a long time, I didn't realize that I was choosing to suffer over and over again. And I was choosing that pain. And I was stuck there. And I realized that I didn't want to be stuck on there anymore. And, and, you know, thankfully for me, it was my kids that made me realize that I was not going in the direction that I wanted to go. And I was able to, you know, this is a great part of life is that you can be going in a negative direction, but you don't have to stay there. You can always say, okay, I'm not going where I want to be. Take a few steps back and shift your perspective, shift to a new direction and turn your life around. Everybody has the ability to do that. Yes, definitely. You know, because Paloma's inner child, little Paloma, 
had to be validated, right? Her story had to be told because it had never been told. She didn't have the opportunity to get emotional and be vulnerable, especially with her siblings, just because they didn't have that modeling from their parents. You know, Mm -hmm. there wasn't any space to be like vulnerable, like, hey, I'm having a really shitty day. I just need to cry, you know? So at some point that needs to happen. So the other thing is like, especially with moms, you know, there's so much societal pressure to be mm-hmm. the perfect mom, right? You know, yeah. you, it has to look like this. Mm-hmm. And there's so much virtue signaling of you're doing it wrong. So God forbid you're a mom with a drinking problem. Yeah, seriously. There's that. And then there's also the other side of that coin where you see, you know, on Facebook and you see on Instagram, all these posts about, well, if mommy just wants to have a glass of wine at the end of the day, that's fine. And, you know, for somebody like me, they take that to heart and they're like, well, you know, but for me, it wasn't a glass of wine. It was a bottle. (laughs) Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I've always been a busy person in general, but having two kids at home is definitely stressful. I mean, you want to have a routine for them. You want to have everything in order and it gets out of hand. And I mean, I started drinking when I was 18. I started partying when I was 18. It was drinking for me was just a way to cope with any emotion, whether I was happy or sad or angry or anything. There was always a reason to drink, you know? And sometimes that meant, yeah, having a glass of wine and unwinding and you know, going to bed early and maybe reading a book while I drink a glass of wine. But other times when I was really stressed out, and especially when I was holding back all this emotion, it was definitely drinking until I passed out and waking up the next day and not being the best mommy. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily a mean mom. Like I wasn't, I'm strict, but I think that's just me as in general as a mom. I do expect my kids to be respectful of others and to be mindful and but but they're kids, you know? And I think at some point I was just like not there. I was there in body, but I was not there in spirit. I was, you know, I was somewhere else. I was lost in my own ocean of emotions that I didn't know how to deal with. And that was so painful to me. You know, seeing my kids and not being able to be there for them emotionally was devastating to me. I wanted to be that, especially because I didn't have that growing up. I want so badly to be able to do that for my kids. And that's what was... Man, that's what drove me to just let it all out. You know, everything that I had been through, everything that I've done, because, you know, I'm not the perfect person. I'm not a saint. I've done some fucked up shit. And it really made me want to let go of all of that and just be able to show up as my best self, find my best self, because I didn't know that I was even capable of that. And yeah, you know, here I am. And I'm so grateful that I did that. And it was painful and it came with some tears and shame. And covering a lot of shame was not fun, but it's necessary. Thank God you have such a beautiful, wonderful, supporting husband. Yeah. So yeah, just to, mm-hmm. I guess like as a word to the mothers out there, you know, that might be struggling with different things is to have a little bit of compassion for yourself and maybe understand that you could have just some stuff in, in there, you know, that you have shame around that you need to talk to somebody about, mm-hmm. you know, because with drinking and all of that stuff, you know, whatever else, maybe you have dishonesty or you're finding that it's hard to be honest with people. There's a reason. You know, there's a reason there's something going on inside of you that just needs a little bit of love and empathy and compassion to find somebody who can listen and hold space and not judge you, you know? And if you can't find anybody, we are here. (laughs) That's part of, 
you know, the work that we do is allowing you to just come and share what's going on with you. So also Paloma, um, so I know we talked about faith as one of the aspects that creates resiliency. And by the way, you know, faith doesn't have to be in God, because I know a lot of my listeners, especially some of the former members from the family slash the children of God, take a more atheistic approach just because of the not super positive relationship that we had with religion growing up. And so you hear the word like faith or spirituality and you're like, yeah, (laughs) run. But faith really, it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to choose the positive, you know, and I'm not, you know, I know we've talked a lot about spiritual bypassing and all of that. I'm all for, you know, feeling, you know, if something shitty happens, how Elrod has the most amazing practice is something shitty happens. He sets the timer on his watch for five minutes and then he just lets himself freak out. Like he'll cuss as loud as he needs to, or he'll punch the air or he'll just cry or whatever it is that he needs to do to move that emotion through him, mm-hmm. which is like a form of validating, like, okay, this is shitty. Maybe you just got into a car accident whatever it is, you know, and let yourself feel that, but don't stay there. I have quite a few friends who love to ruminate. Rumination is the fucking enemy of happiness. Sitting there thinking, why did this happen? Why me? Like, oh God, blah, 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 blah. blah. And you just don't let it go. And you talk Mm -hmm. about it and Google listen to me. Oh, so let me tell you about all of my problems. And then as soon as somebody else will listen, you keep talking about your problems. Faith is the ability to let yourself feel upset and angry and then say, you know what? What can I learn from this? How can I get through this? How can I use this to later be of service to other people? Let my experience help people. Like, how can I get through this tunnel? You know, where can I grab a torch and like light up my way so I can make it through? If you're going through hell, just keep on going, you know? And so it's faith is the ability to think I've been through worse situations Mm -hmm. and I've gotten through every single time. I've survived a hundred percent of the bad days that I've had. Sometimes faith comes from the past from remembering that we've made it through, you know, and maybe even thinking about one of those times, you know, faith is just the ability to recognize that the world was made in beautiful, utter perfection and creation somehow. Yep. You know, it's just understanding that there is stuff that we don't know. Yeah. A hundred percent true. Faith for me was being able to look at everything that my older siblings went through, everything that my father went through, everything that my mother went through, and how they were able to, because, you know, living in Mexico, they lived in poverty. They lived in a neighborhood that was terrible, where there was people were getting killed, where there was dangerous. And knowing that they had the ability to get to the United States, find a home for all of us to live in. I mean, God damn, there's nine kids and two adults, right? I mean, finding a home that we were all able to live in and be here and and make it here. For me, that was my faith, was looking at my brothers and sisters and looking at my mom and dad and seeing, fuck, man, they made it. You know, they made it out of that hellhole. I have to be able to make it out of mine. And, you know, looking back at all the bad days that we've had and knowing that we're still here and we're still grinding, we're still surviving. Every day that you wake up is truly a blessing from whoever, like whoever you believe in. I personally believe in God, but, you know, whoever you believe in, it's you're here and we should be thankful for it. 
That was the other thing I was going to bring up. The other thing that I think contributes to resiliency big time is gratitude. But also just to speak to her point, maybe you don't have many family members who are doing too well. Maybe you're mm-hmm. doing the best of all of them and you're kind of carrying the weight of your family. Try to find a role model maybe outside of your family mm-hmm. who has experienced some major adversities and have made it through alive or dead. I mean, look at history. History is riddled with them. Look at freaking Braveheart, William Wallace. Look at uh, Joan of Arc, who's one of my favorites, who literally defied all of the odds to make it. You know, like there are countless stories of examples of people who have been tried and tested and have completely came out victorious. But yeah, gratitude. Gratitude is a big one for me. What are some of the other tools that you use that have help to you. Something that works for me whenever I'm facing a tough time and I feel like I shouldn't have to deal with certain situation or circumstance, you know, I like to remind myself that life is not fair. And if life was fair, I would not have a home. I would not have water to drink. I would not have, you know, my kids. I would not have a lot of things that I do have. It always just kind of goes back to gratitude for me is being grateful for the things that I do have and knowing that, you know, because of everything that I've been through, because of everything that I've been able to overcome, just knowing that everything happens for a reason, knowing that there's always light at the end of the tunnel and that this is temporary. The negative emotion that I'm experiencing, the circumstance is temporary. And you know that maybe I just need to sit in it for a little while and feel the emotion and, you know, let it come over me, but I I don't want to stay there. You know, I think I stayed in my negative emotions for, for a while and I that served me no purpose whatsoever. I was miserable and I just absolutely do not want to be miserable ever again in my life. Now having the tools that I have to look at the circumstance and be able to apply those tools because it takes practice, you know, being able to say, okay, well, this could be a lot worse. I'm doing okay. It just, that's, that's pretty much what I do. And the last thing I want to ask you um, is some tips that you can give our listeners for your happy marriage, because I know that you and your husband are really thriving and doing better than ever, you know, despite everything that you guys have been through and and all, you know, the long way that you guys have come. What are some of the aspects that you would attribute to that? For me, open communication was a big one. And that was where things started going wrong. Is And it was mainly the communication was falling off from my side of things. I wasn't being open with what was going on inside of my head, just my emotions. And I wasn't sharing. I think that sharing and communicating is super important in a relationship, making sure that you're on the same page. One of the big ones that helped me understand the way that my husband likes to be loved and the way that he likes to receive love and give love was the five love Love languages. languages. That was one of the first things that Olivia sent me. She asked me, what is your love language? And I was like, what the hell is that? (laughs) And so being able to explore it from a place of curiosity, like, you know, being able to kind of reopen that romance, because whenever you have kids, you know, my husband and I, when we met, we were wild and free. We were going out. We were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. We we're party animals. We like to go party and we like to spend time together and we just have such a deep connection. And, you know, obviously whenever you have kids, a lot of that changes and you start losing intimacy and you start losing, you know, that like spark, the spark, the fun. But I think it's so important to find that again. I think for anybody that's going through moments, adult moments in their marriage, they need to be able to look back and Find that spark again, you know, and explore your marriage from a place of curiosity instead of judgment. We're always so stuck in like, oh, like, you know, we're not as good as we could be or like, you know, all the judgy comments that we make about ourselves. 
we apply that to our marriage. And if we just look at our marriage from a place of, you know, curiosity, just kind of like where we're at right now. And, you know, what do we want to do for the future? And um, just get to know each other again. Because, so curiosity. Yeah. Keeping that curiosity alive. Yeah. That's a big one. That's Huge. a big one. That and just, you know, trusting each other, open communication, respecting each other and love. I mean. So what are y'all's love languages? His is acts of service, which I should have known, you know, and in our culture, our Mexican culture, I used to hate when my, my aunts and my mom or my older sisters would be like, hey, you know, go fix up a plate for Brian. I'd be like, well, he can do it himself. <laughs> but, that's, but that's his love language. That's the way he likes to receive love. And I had no idea, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think earlier on in a relationship, I did that and somewhere I fell off. And for me, it's receiving gifts, which I didn't think it was. But for me, it's I'm a gift receiver and he didn't know that either. And so, you know, obviously he's not one of he's not a romantic type of person. You know, he doesn't stop every Friday and get me flowers. He sometimes forgets our anniversary. He sometimes, you know, just doesn't. He's not very very romantic to put it that way but he has such a big heart and he's so honest and he's so understanding and he has so much compassion I mean like that all of those other qualities they just kind of like make up for that one thing that he doesn't have right but yeah knowing that his love language was acts of service kind of made me try a little bit harder to show him love that way and he has been better. Like, you know, if you go to the store, he brings me chocolate every once in a while. Or he brings me something that he thinks I like. He's more thoughtful that way. Yeah, exactly. Because it just like, it brings awareness to mm-hmm. that, right? Like, yeah. you, it's anyone's best guess, you know, what your partner likes until you actually sit down and you're like, oh, actually, I really like this. And sometimes it's fun to just explore it together. See what that feels like. And what's interesting is that before, you know, I found out that that was my love language, I used to buy him stuff all the time. You know, I would, if I was shopping, anywhere and I saw something he might like, I would get it for him because that's the way that I received love. And so that's the way that I thought he received love too, when it's not necessarily like that. And for him, it was the same thing where like, you know, he would do things around the house. For me, that doesn't really, it's not really the way I receive love. So to me, it was kind of like, oh, cool. Like, thanks. That's kind of just what you're supposed to do, but whatever. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so then a lot of resentment can build up because the one person is like, well, I'm doing this and this and this. And the other person's like, well, I didn't never ask you to. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that. That's where a lot of the disconnect was coming from, too. It's like, you know, just kind of being all over the place. Not really. We lost touch with one another, you know. We have two kids later and just work and we have our bills to pay. We have our house and I'm over here trying to find a career that I'm passionate and I love. And I'm still stuck in my bartending world. And it's kind of like it can go all over the place. But yeah, you know, just kind of taking a break from everything and being honest and open. And for me, it was hard to have that conversation with him where I was telling him, I remember telling him, you know, he just kind of sat me down and he was like, what the hell is going on? Like, you haven't been yourself. And I remember having, you know, to tell him, well, this is the way that I prepare for breakups because that's what I had done in my past relationships. And he was kind of like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I mean, we're not happy anymore. What's going on? And it was a really hard conversation that we had to have. But, you know, being able to like have that conversation is what made us realize that we're falling apart and we needed to put some glue on that shit and make it work, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point too. It's like, so if you've been through a lot of trauma and, you know, scoring a nine on the ace is pretty high. Um, There's a lot of dysfunction that can come through that. And just depending on what your life story is, if you've experienced a lot of trauma in childhood, you tend to have an overactive amygdala, which keeps you in the fight, flight, or freeze. And it's really an important 
aspect of understanding yourself and knowing yourself, self-realization, is understanding your tendency. Do you freeze, fight, or flight? I have historically been a huge flighter, especially (laughs) in relationships. One foot out the door. You know, and I tried to be vulnerable in one of my relationships and tell him, and he just always is like, okay, well, are we breaking up? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I just told you that because, like, you know, and that's it, my it's tendency. Been, it's been my experience, too, that whenever you say that, it backfires, you know, it, completely. It, like, you want to you wanna say that from a place of, like, open-mindedness and hope that there's some mending that can happen. And in my past relationships, it completely backfires. Well, if you want to leave me, leave me. And it's like, okay, like, well, I guess this is it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so because of my past experiences with all of my other relationships, yeah, I was like, oh, shit, he's going to leave me. Like, this is it. We're done. <laughs> you know? And he was like, hell no, not so quick. What do you mean? Like, what's going on? And that's when I was like, oh, you don't want to leave me? You still love me? Oh my God. (laughs) Incredible. Yeah. And then to pair with that is like your attachment style. So it's really important also to know if you're anxious, attachment, avoidant, you know, what your tendencies or if you're secure and then figuring out how to communicate in that realm as well. But, you know, also if you're a freeze, I just want to mention this part, you might be, find yourself staying stuck in a relationship that might not be very good for you. Mm -hmm. This is kind of off topic, but I do want to bring this up. I've been talking about it, you know, in between now and our last episode, but I haven't, you know, had a chance to talk about it openly. And then I heard a podcast with Brene Brown where she talks about the exact same thing. I was like, she beat me to the punch. But it's just a message that I want to really put out there. And it's around the phrase or the expression toxic masculinity. I want to urge my listeners out there and for you to urge the people around you to really remove that from your vocabulary and to get rid of a lot of these labels because they are so unhelpful and unnecessary. And the way that I flipped it was like, how would you feel if people were saying toxic femininity? Yeah. And that would not fly like Mm -hmm. because of, you know, feminists and all that other stuff. Why? Why is it okay to say toxic masculine, but not toxic feminine? Like that's not going to help them. That's not going to encourage them to getting better. We should not be talking about our fellow human beings like that. So please, like, you know, there's a reason why they are acting in a way, you know, and it's usually how they were modeled after from their parents or whatever the case may be, even their mothers. I think that is so true. Just to bring up another point, recently there was like this controversy with the Dr. Seuss books and people were like, you know, going crazy about like, you know, the older generation was like, well, how are we going to, they were offended by the the mere fact that the Dr. Seuss Foundation, did you hear about this? No. That the Dr. Seuss, they were moving six books. From the libraries, I guess. And the company, the Dr. Seuss company decided to do this because there was some racial, you know, profiling in the books or whatever. And so the older generation was offended by it because of the hypersensitivity that the younger generation portrays. And the younger generation was offended by the opinions of the older generation. But when you look at it objectively, when you look at the situation, you know, the Dr. Seuss company, they removed these books because they saw that there was some racial profiling or whatever it was. And in one of the interviews, I think one of, I don't remember if it was his son or his nephew or something, but he said, well, you know, Dr. Seuss, he was known to grow and evolve and his art grew and evolved. And that's what we're called to do as human beings. You know, when we look at the situation objectively, you see the facts for what they are. Yeah, maybe there were some pictures that were not, you know, that were racial. And 
we're making the moves to progress and grow and evolve. And his art brought a lot more good than bad. Exactly. And, you know, you have to be able to look at, you know, individuals like that. And I feel like everybody's just on one side of the spectrum or the other. And it's like, everybody just wants to fight. Crucify them if <laughs> yeah. they make one mistake. Yeah, seriously. Shame, 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 shame. Yeah. It's just, that's what it is. It was just like, stop it. Like, mm-hmm. let's stop shaming each other. Yeah. And honestly, you know, I'm so quick to like point the finger. Like, so we're in Texas and they just removed the mask mandate. <laughs> and so I walk into the gym, you know, for the first time, I'm like, yes, I'm going to get to work out without a mask on and breathe for the first time. And I see a bunch of people with their masks still on, you know, and my thoughts are like, I wonder if people are going to like start shaming the ones who take off their masks. And then I walk into the class and there's two people with their masks on. And I was like, oh, you're still wearing your masks. And then I'm like, Olivia, like <laughs> you're you are the one shaming them. What is happening? It's so, so true. It's, it's so, so true. We're constantly yeah. thinking about the separate, how separate we are from everybody and how different. And it's like, no, we're all one. Like, can't we remember that? It's like, needs to be a daily reminder. We are one. Yeah. We come from the same source. Like, and we're here to grow and evolve. So the mistakes that we've made in the past, the things that we've said in the past that were offensive, you know, if we are willing to make amends and move on and grow from that, then... That's what matters. That's what counts. That's what counts. Yeah. yeah. And that's what's going to unify us and make us one whole again. And man, people are just so divided right now and it sucks. I know. What can we do? What small steps can we do or take to unify people? Curiosity, asking, just asking people how their day's going, you know? Yeah. Connecting with them, looking in their eyes, making eye contact and just figuring out what's up with them. Oh my God, I am just, I feel so good having recorded this. I missed it. I missed you guys. I missed talking on here, getting curious with my guests about their stories. And I just want to thank you so much, Paloma, for coming on and sharing your story. You killed it. Where can people find you? Oh, as you guys know, we are not on social media anymore. So if you have found value in this podcast and there was something that touched you or that you think others would benefit from, please share it with them, like it, post it on your social media so other people can hear it. But we just decided to take a little break or probably not just a break, but we'll be off of social media just so that we can actually focus on connecting with people in real time and not let all of that other stuff distract us from the integrity of our intention, which is truly to be there for people, to be present with them, which can be so difficult when our minds are so focused on elsewhere, you know? So if you can share it if you are interested in talking to us or working with us or sharing your story email us at become.activated20 at gmail.com yes and to answer your question you can find me on right now i'm on facebook under paloma cifuentes i'm also going to be starting a project soon where i will be breaking up the five pillars of health and i'll be making some videos and posting them on my social media I hope to open up a page soon and be able to work from there. So definitely go follow me. What Stay is your uh, social media? Um, Paloma Cifuentes on Facebook. And how do you spell that? P-A-L-O-M-A. Cifuentes is S-I-F-U-E-N-T-E-S. And what about Instagram? Instagram is Paloma underscore Cifuentes. Awesome. We love you guys so much. Thank you for being with us here today. We will see you next week. Bye.